What's up, everybody? This is Joe LaPuma. You are listening to the Complex Sneakers Podcast. I'm with my guy, Matt Welty. How's everyone doing? And of course, Brendan Dunn, straight from Brooklyn. How are we feeling? I'm feeling all right, man. Just trying to make the best of the situation. Okay. It's getting to you a little bit? Uh, Maybe, but you know, could be worse. I think I'm over it at this point, man. I think it's it. we're finally at the point where I'm really like chomping at the bit with this whole quarantine. Just now? Well, he was sick for a while. Yeah, so I lost about three weeks, but I would say that finally at this point, especially with the weather getting nicer too, it just makes it even worse, I think. I get nervous every time the weather gets nice. So Saturday night, I was talking to Chops, Chops of the Load Management Podcast, and it was like 7.45. The sun was setting. It was beautiful out, and I was talking to him, and he was like, you know, right now we'd probably be watching the NBA playoffs, pre-gaming, and then probably like coming to my roof or something to chill. And I think that's when it's going to hit hard, guys. However many more weeks of this inside when it's like friday saturday sunday and it's like 68 and beautiful out that's when we're gonna feel it i got a backyard i might have to start recording from there oh <laughs> someone just pushed the stunt button <laughs> not <laughs> okay. at all the backyard you get a tan like paulie walnuts or in the sopranos oh also <laughs> Brendan Dunn has never seen The Sopranos, right? Yeah, that's true. I'm not particularly proud of it. So people I deeply care about in my life are big fans, and I need to do right by them and go watch that series. But I'm just not a binge-watch guy very often. I don't don't really watch TV. I watch a little bit of Jeopardy here and there, but that's about it. Okay. The Sopranos to Jeopardy. Brendan, wasn't it like one of your good friends made it really far in Jeopardy a few years ago? So, no, I know what you're talking about. Not one of my good friends. One of my internet friends a writer who i respect who i know from very nerdy circles in my past that we don't necessarily need to get into right now the dungeons and dragons uh community or no? <laughs> i mean that's, that's yeah. a bit of a misnomer but that's um <laughs> same thing <laughs> that part of my life so a guy named tim ayton yes he had a good run on jeopardy and we always used to talk about jeopardy but i don't know that guy super well so i don't ever want to pretend like we're the best of friends but you don't want to clout chase off the jeopardy champion <laughs> exactly I got my own clout now. I'm surprised you haven't made a strong push in the past week to get yourself in Space Jam 2 with its uh, announcement. I know that you've been on a campaign for that. We posted an asset around it on the Complex Sneakers Instagram, and I was in the comments like letting them know. I, I got some people at Warner Brothers, so it's wealthy. I know that you don't believe in us being in Space Jam 2, <laughs> but I believe in it. And I believe we can infiltrate that studio system, and I believe we can leave our mark. And I believe it would go straight to DVD. And I believe... <laughs> <laughs> and one more thing, no R. Kelly, but I believe I can fly. Oh, you know who had a kind of rough Sunday? Reebok, right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> a little bit, you know. New episode of The Last Dance, flashback to the 92 Olympics. Michael Jordan famously not at all interested in wearing the Reebok branded Team USA gear. So he draped the flag over his shoulder. And my mentions were, I won't say on fire, but they were smoldering. People feel the need, and and I've given this PSA multiple times, you do not need to tag me in everything Reebok-related on social media. (laughs) The one conversation that we did have, Brendan, me and you yesterday, was that the hot take is that the last dance from like a production standpoint is kind of garbage. The storytelling? Yes. What? It shows no restraint. It's very, Joe, even though we know what's happening in it, it, it makes no sense why the storyline keeps on flashing back between 1992 and 1998. Okay, so I saw someone tweet like, hey, this is really tough to follow. Yeah, it just aims more to be a comprehensive Michael Jordan life story than it does to be about the singular event or season in 97, 98. So obviously, when you have a guy as important as Michael Jordan, there's a lot to say, but this was pitched to us as a look at that season. And it's so much more than that. And it, like I said, it, sh- it shows no restraint. If you want to tell a story, focus on that one story. And because they try and tell the entire story of his life, it's just like back and forth and back and forth. Why? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good aspects in it, but like, it's like we said, it's like, you know, when you interview someone and you like fall in love with all the material that you get out of it and you have a yeah. hard time, like cutting it, that's kind of feels like it, what happened in the documentary. Yeah. You got to kill your darlings. 
I called Joe in the middle of the last episode to discuss some strategy, and he immediately screened it. Sent me to <laughs> sent me to voicemail, even yep. though he's already seen it once before. I know. Listen, well, the funny thing is, I screened your call and then immediately answered the text. So, <laughs> I appreciate. You know? I'd like me if you guys are texting me these days at ten twenty two p.m. I'm You're out. sleeping. Yeah, I'm out. I got a five thirty call time for a date with Destiny. Oh, it's funny. Welty was texting me Sunday as well. So, <laughs> oh uh, God, we, yeah. we, we got into it. Yeah, you so, guys got into it. Yeah, about okay. him not being verified on Twitter. It's not about that. It, it was just the a conversation of what is a blue check really worth, and I had tweeted something about it. And I think the system, the blue check system, is kind of fucked up on Twitter, just in general. But okay, yeah, and I'm of the mind of who gives a shit. We had a nice back and forth where I was basically telling him that he's shooting at the wrong buckets. There was yeah, some twenty. Some, there was some twenty thirteen JLP talk in those some flashbacks. A little, but I just was trying to get him to understand the bigger picture. You know, the way that they Joe used to be described, I think was uh, I think maybe Noah said this in an article that you used to be like the junkyard dog a complex on Twitter. Yeah, the pit bull, but junkyard yeah. dog also acceptable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. When, 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 whenever anything happened, like Joe Lapuma was like the dog on a leash, like ready to like attack someone on Twitter. Mm. Not anymore. Now I just try to do it BTS. Oh, so you know what I want to talk about? Those W Taps New Balances. For those who are listening, though, W Taps Japanese menswear streetwear brand did a collaboration with New Balance Nine Nine Two that dropped. It exploded. Like the resale price of the shoes exploded. What was it? Asia only exclusive or what? No, they had them on end clothing too, I believe. I think outside of Asia, for the most part, the only stores that had them were stores that carry double tabs. So the number of retailers in North America that had them was pretty small and they didn't have a lot of stock. You want to talk about a fire double tap shoe that I wanted back in the day with those purple vans with the, yeah, Remember those, the purple chukkas with the skull and bones on them? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a couple pairs of double taps joints around here. I used to wear the one of the suede double taps vans, and it's kind of weird because I think it's technically a sample, although there's nothing different from the retail pair, except I think the production on them isn't quite right, so the tongue is long or not stitched the proper way, so the tongue is always sliding down. But they're down going the for a thousand bucks, which is yeah, like kind of crazy. Balances, yeah, I love it. I love it. Between that and the Joe Fresh Goods New Balance 992 is also up there at like $700. Wow, that's good. Yeah, but disclaimer, I don't believe that a shoe's secondary market price is always the marker of their true value, but it is a good guidance. JLP made another purchase too, right? That you were talking to hold us on, hold about. Hold on, hold on. That was not a purchase for me, just so we know. I did make another purchase done. Do you remember what I You're sent to the group X? chat? No, not on StockX. This one caught me off guard. I would say I out of all the things that you said, hey, I caved, this was not a thing I was expecting on your list. Yeah, so... You overnighted the prosciutto loud pack? No, but in, in the same vein as a prosciutto uh, loud pack, the Ame <laughs> penny loafers. Yes. I'm also surprised that you caved to this because this is the sort of thing that I would think that you would just have on the dial. What do you mean? Like, if you wanted something ALD, like, you wouldn't have to purchase it. I mean, I talked to them, like, to hold it, and I purchased it, but yeah. At retail? I'm not sure, actually. I'm not not (laughs) sure. But the white penny loafers, the ALD pennies, my first, like, hard bottoms in a while. And I'm looking forward to wearing them. I'm going to test it out. Did you plan out the fit yet? You know, I envision a white t-shirt, jeans, and the white loafers in a late summer when we're all allowed out of the house and everything mm-hmm. is is not back to normal, obviously, but a little sense of normalcy. I was expecting shorts. Nah, nah. Shorts, no socks? Nope. I would do jeans, no socks, white t-shirt. We'll go from there. Maybe I'll pull up to the office when we're back. I hope it happens. This digital divide isn't doing it for me done you all right you sound very excited about today you okay? no i am excited okay let's bring excited. the let's bring the energy up i know ariel hawani a couple weeks back was not impressed with our level of engagement you want him over but we're you, engaged you're a slow starter what about in your um, marathon training do you start slow and then because it seems like on the podcast you go out a little slow and then that's when how you you're finish. supposed to do it but in the in the chicago <laughs> marathon i did quite the opposite and it was my downfall so you I let, think maybe you I'm went out too fast. Absolutely. I hate that. I used to hate running track, the mile run, first two laps ahead of the pack, then all of a sudden hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gotta pace yourself. I remember is a f- funny sneaker story. I uh I think it was the mile run in fifth grade. 
I want to say yeah. either fourth or fifth grade when you know you really you like, guys ran a mile then I didn't do a mile until like seventh grade you had to it was like the fitness test like you had to do like the chin ups the mile run sit like, and reach yeah all fourth that grade yes all that I think it was every yeah but I remember I think it was either fourth or fourth grade or something like that and my mom had got me these nike high tops that were like super aggressive you ran and, the mile in those and, and i tried to run the mile <laughs> in those it just wasn't happening and i wasn't like the fastest runner as a kid like my body developed like a little bit later but um I think I ran the mile like in like 15 minutes, like something oh. com- completely Damn. like embarrassing. And for a whole year, I was like afraid to run because I ran a mile. Like I was the last person in like the whole class because of the fucking Nike basketball sneakers that I ran the Damn, mile. You don't remember the actual shoe? It was uh, just like a takedown um, shoe mm. from a Nike famous- Sweet Classic or something. <laughs> no, like a famous footwear, like a very like 90s outdoor yeah. basketball shoe after that you started training hard hit hit the beaches of new hampshire barefoot <laughs> yeah. or a chariots of fire style with the piano in the background <laughs> i hold yeah. the record for the fifth grade mile at south country five minutes and 30 seconds five minutes and 30 seconds my best mile is 449 at the armory in high school 449 yeah. yeah yeah how i, I ran track i ran but track, still but like sub five minute miles kind of yeah, crazy that was my best i was a track runner put those calves to use man was that the zoom citizen on feet i was wearing track spikes but i was training in nothing great nothing memorable nothing memorable i know you said you had those air max 97s that your mom bought you what was it first day of junior high yes in 97 did you actually run in those no too nice yeah it's funny correct me if i'm wrong you know what i think i ran in during those times like the falcon some adidas like oh yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, it was like i used the 97s for like school and it looking great and then when i had to like really train i use like the bs like falcons which aren't functional that much great to catch up with you guys i'm glad we're here again for another week we got a big one today often the word pioneer is thrown around too loosely in sneaker culture but our guest today stands alone when it comes to being a groundbreaker in the space he is among one of the only if not the only to have a book movie and multiple footwear collaborations under his belt He also penned the column Confessions of a Sneaker Addict for The Source magazine back in 1991. He is a famed DJ and was the co-host of the legendary Stretch Armstrong and Bobito show. It's an honor to have Bobito Garcia on the Complex Sneakers podcast. Welcome. Yo, yo, what up, what up, what up? That was a great introduction. I like that. Your producer did well. Shout out to David Matthews. <laughs> Don't hold give on. him any credit. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. David Matthews is not a producer. David Matthews is an intern. <laughs> Nothing more. David, look, he just popped up on the Zoom. Get him out of here. Yeah. How did David Matthews come into your life, Bob? Well, interesting. And how do you get him out? Because that's what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a tenacious dude. I don't know, I don't know if you know, Hell but yeah. uh, well, it just started because he was working at CNN. And Soledad O'Brien was doing a special about Latinos in America. And she had interviewed my brother and she wanted to get some background on the family. So David knew who I was and had reached out and uh, the segment came out fire. Bob, I know you've been into sneakers your whole life and your history goes back so many decades, but I think a good place to start is like the Nike Air Force One in 1982. I recall you saying that was a sneaker that kind of changed everything you likened it to rock him in terms of this new style or this new era that it marked. Why was the Air Force One so impactful? Um, well, first of all, I authored a book that was released in 2003 titled Where'd You Get Those New York City Sneaker Culture 1960 to 1987. Um, and in that 27-year history, which, you know, for me is like the, the dark era of our culture's journalism, that is one of the reasons why I stopped the book at that year. Because post that, pretty much everybody knows what happened. Jordan comes into the league. You know, the NBA kind of embraces uh, sneakers, as does, you know, the industry and, you know, the urban and hip-hop. Everything starts, like, meshing really, really forcefully. But if if we go back to one of the pillar shoes of that time period and of my youth as well, because I'm born in 1966, uh, the Air Force One is just, like, there's, like, there's everything that happened in hip hop before Rakim and there's everything that happened in hip hop after Rakim and it's, it's similar. 
it's the same thing, you know, with Jordan. It's like there's pre-Jordan, you know, and then there's after Jordan. Um, and yeah, the Air Force One is is right up there with it. To my recollection, you know, Nike says it uh, it was released in 1982. I can't find any proof that it did in my own history, my own narrative. I didn't see it in stores until 1983. Um, you know, if you find photos of NBA players wearing it, it's all from the 83 season or 84 uh, season. Or you think of college teams with war, it was in 83, 84, not 82, 83. Um, so it's, you know, maybe it was, uh, available in the catalogs in 82 maybe it was available in certain cities like portland you know just like they do now the quick strikes and we didn't have that terminology back then but sneakers did come out in certain uh locations prior to other regions you know um so maybe that i don't i don't know so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna argue with the brand about when it came out but um my history with the air force one starts in 1983 the fall to be exact I saw it on a uh, on a wall at the Gallery of Mall in Philadelphia. I was going to Lower Marion High School. I was an ABC student there. It's a minority scholarship program. And uh, 12 years later, as you know, Kobe Bryant graduated from there and went straight to the pros. Uh, but I was there from 82 to 84. And, um, you know, Philly, just like New York, was a hotbed for kicks. Still is, you know dead up thought they were hiking boots when i saw them on the on the wall they were just so clunky and so like the leather was so thick and i was like what you know what are these like if you compare it to the night blazer you know which a lot of skaters are, are familiar with you know the leather was really thin um the midsole was you could you could bend it like this you know like simply um where the air force one like the the midsole was was like it was thick you know and it had that air bag in it and you know for a ball player like myself who who predominantly played outdoors even when i was playing at lower murray varsity i would come home from a game and i would still go to the to the the court across the street on Almore avenue and shoot around or work on my game or whatever like for someone who played ball outdoors it was like night and day is it's like it's 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 incalculable to tell you the difference of of what the air force one presented in terms of technology there's no leap like that ever you can't talk about flywire you can't talk about the kobe four you can't talk about anything there's no leap that affected ball players the way the air force one did just hands down and i'm look i'm 53 about to turn 54 i'm still playing ball i still put on the, the Kyrie fours and the Kyrie fives and the Kyrie sixes and yeah they're comfortable and there's no leap in technology like the air force one it was like everything was here and then it was like and all the brands started started you know replicating the the, the research and development you know, I mean, not that that research and development hadn't already existed, but when the Air Force One came along, you know, brands were, were like shook. Oh, yo, we gotta we gotta step up our game. You know, even other designers at Nike were shook. I mean, it's you know, it I, I really you cannot calculate the impact that the Air Force One had unless you lived it. Bob, and then you ended up getting six versions of the air force one and your own one of one bobito the white maroon with the gum sole i'm going to check you on that it's actually seven i did four high tops and i did three uh low cuts for the air force one 25th anniversary in 2007 the high tops there was a, a red white and blue a blue white and red um there was a mac and cheese there's a beef and broccoli uh then i did three low cuts the three low cuts were more like for the DJ side of me, whereas the, the high tops are more like for the ball player and me. I know you've talked about back when you were really into shoes like the Air Force One, that it was corny for people who weren't playing basketball to be wearing sneakers like that. Did you feel like that? Like you had to kind of earn the right to wear a shoe as important as the Air Force One, as the Nike Dunk, as the franchise? Well, I mean, you know, keeping it in perspective, if 
you spent like eighty to hundred dollars in nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty five on a on a on a performance shoe. Like, yeah, you should be a ball player. You know, I mean, of course, if you had the money to spend on it, then by all means, spend it. If you're aspiring to be a, a, I mean, it's like that in skate skate culture too. Like, you see a kid show up to the park with like the new everything, you know, the, the pads, and you know, you know, his mom just took him to the to the shop for the first time, and he's out there. Like, he hasn't earned a right to, he hasn't earned his stripes yet to have like the new wheels without the, you know, ball bearings or whatever it is. You know, what I'm saying it's, a, it's the same way in basketball, same way in, in cycling. You know, you got to earn it. You got to like step up to that but i mean you know sneakers you know i wrote that in my book because there was a dude at the new york new york athletic club cat that i went to wesleyan university with brought me there one day he was a rich kid from the upper east side he brought me to the new york athletic it was like elite and there was a dude in there with high top white green air force ones which were impossible to buy you could not you could not find white green air force ones no way not in any store and he had them on and he was and before i saw him shoot i was like oh he's a ball player because the only way you could get those if you were playing for a college team or high school team or you were playing for riverside or the gauchos or you know you had to be like official so when i saw him with the white green joints i was like oh this dude must be nice and i saw him take his first shot i was like oh he's probably a ball boy or somebody blessed him you know he's He's a nah, he's a nah, he's a burger. Um, and then I was then I was tight because I was like, damn, I would love to have those. Like I'm playing, you know, I'm playing my hardest. I but eventually, I mean, you know, once once hip hop took grabs of you know any of those shoes uh that were iconic, it just transcended the skill level. It just became like, yo, like cats showing up in a club, they don't play a lick of ball, but they got to fly white orange air force ones you know and became a status a status symbol we see that now more than ever some people would call a lack of authenticity in the sneakers that they're wearing you know we even see recently like the nike dunk sb coming back for people who don't even skate and things like that and in sneaker culture it's always kind of a back and forth how in 2020 do you feel about it there's no entry point the way that was i mean you know i'm talking about a, a era that was is a complete 360 difference to what exists now where if you look at phone posits for example when a phone posits first came out like they were ball player shoe you weren't really weren't right you weren't really flexing phone posits unless you play ball same thing with air force ones but like you know every brand desires to cross over to the lifestyle i can't be a curmudgeon and be like oh he doesn't he's not authentic wearing the mm-hmm. adidas harden g4s four, uh, or or the Kyrie sixes is like yo like everything is out there and quite frankly, it's, it's wonderful. I know like, you know, you've kind of spoke about in the past too, like the idea of PE footwear to you was dope in the sense that if you played ball hard enough to get a scholarship to Holy Cross and get white and purple blazers, that you should like flex those shoes as kind of like an accomplishment of like your ball playing skills. But nowadays you see like, there'll be like the University of Florida Air Jordan 4s and like rappers are spending like $20,000 mm-hmm. on to get the, you know, the exclusive Air Jordans for the University of Florida. Is that like cool or is that kind of crazy to you, the idea of that? It's what it's become. I am not the vanguard that's trying to prevent or critique it. That's not my role in this game. I want to talk about Air Jordans for a second because I remember when the first Jordan came out. I, I think you wrote something years later about how every herb in the world <laughs> wore this shoe and it was kind of like an inferior version of the dunk. It was. You didn't appreciate the logo on the collar. Yeah, the, coll- the <laughs> logo was horrible. You didn't like the wings, right? You got to understand, like I'm born in 1966, right? So mm-hmm. I witnessed like the very best of three eras 60s 70s and 80s of sneakers before the jordan one comes out mm-hmm. and our standards were high mm. you know nike's coming off of releasing the air force one which is like the creme of the creme i told you like revolutionary right. shoe and you come out with jordan one i mean to this day like i still marvel at how people are just so head over heels over the jordan one it's not a pretty shoe it's not sleek mm. If you look at the eyelets, 
Mm -hmm. They're too close to each other. Even if you lace them up loose, they still wind up coming really close. So it's it, there's too much leather on the upper, on the on the laterals. I mean, there's a lot of ways that the Jordan One could have been designed. I mean, on the Jordan Two, they got it. They were like, "Oh, okay, let's <laughs> let's catch let's catch up to speed on where we are as a brand." Did the Jordan One not make an impact in New York then at that time? To my recollection, no. You know, for the fan of Jordan, for the fans of basketball, sure. Mm -hmm. But for the ball players, which was a, we were always like the the Jordan One is the first sneaker that kind of gets around the ball player. Every shoe to, to pop off had to go through our lens first, right? And that's why it's such a game changer. Like look, I may not have ever worn a Jordan One high mm -hmm. top, but I respect it in terms of its contribution to everything that happened afterwards. Do you think even on court, he made it look cool or still non-starter for you? He's the only dude in history that made it, them look cool. <laughs> he's, a, he's a good looking dude. Like his calves, I mean, on some ball player shit, like his calves were incredible. His shins were incredible. His ankle, like Jordan's body, as as a sneaker wearer, as like if you could imagine like the you know the the blueprint of how a person should look and some sneakers is Jordan. He made any sneaker look dope. He wore Adidas. He wore Adidas superstars in high school at Laney, and they look fly. And uh, you know he made the airships look incredible. He made the Converse fast breaks look incredible. He made he made the the Converse uh pro stars look incredible at unc he made the converse dr j pro model look incredible at unc like any shoe he threw on he knew how to lace them he knew how to put on socks he knew how to wear his shorts his legs were were like like sinewy but still strength i mean like when you talk about it, if you want to pick somebody to wear some sneakers and you know my, my my legs are hairy man like you know like my my sneak, my sneakers look dope because I know how to wear them. But like, if you look at my legs, like, like God, this look is, this dude's got the hairy legs, and I got a bald spot on my calves because my calves are always strong, and they used to rub against my jeans as a kid. So yeah, I don't have, I don't have the perfect sneaker leg. Jordan got the perfect sneaker leg, yo, hands down. I ain't never talked about this to to anybody in in this length, but. Yeah, man, he made the Jordan one look good. He's the only one I could look at and be like, him and Clark Kent. Clark Kent can make anything look fly. But even with Clark, even even though Clark knows how to wear Jordan ones, I'm still like, in my head, I'm like, it's, it's just too much leather on the upper. Just watching the documentary, I said it last week on this podcast, like white and red 13s that I would never buy. He made every shoe look fly. And just seeing all that old footage of him wearing those models, I just can't believe like how cool he made all the shoes look on court. Another thing I wanted to talk about, you interviewed him and you also interviewed Kobe. You know, I know that you said yep. that you and Kobe shared the same school. What was it like dealing with them and the difference between them two? Was it for the same column? Was it for like um, you playing the hits? From 1994 to 2004, I had a column in Vibe magazine called Soundcheck. Mm -hmm. And 1997, I had the opportunity to interview Michael Jordan. That was major for any magazine because it wasn't a cover feature. You know, his PR at the brand was not through like, come on, you're going to try to put Michael Jordan right. in the front of the book editorial? Like, yeah. You mad? <laughs> yeah he did front and back cover he deserves probably. Right. Like, dude, yeah. come on, man. Slime Magazine did whole issues yeah. dedicated to Michael right. Jordan. You know, the kicks, kicks deservedly so. Mm -hmm. So got the green life to have me interview Michael Jordan. Now, I only had 10 minutes to interview him. I usually had like 30 to 45. So I show up at his hotel. Never forget this. He had no socks on. He had a suit and dress shoes on. You know, he walked into the room, shook my hand, looked me right up in the eye. He was like, so what does this have to do with my sneaker release? And I looked at him. I said, yeah, I mean, because he was kind of like, why am I doing this? You know, uh, well, actually, no, I think I, I prefaced it first. I was like, I'm going to play you some music get your response. He's like, well, what does that have to do with my sneaker release? I was like, it doesn't really have anything to do with your sneaker release. But what it has to do with is 
uh, shedding a light on you as a uh, cultural tastemaker and, you know, just allowing our audience, you know, which at the time by, by million, by magazine reached 4 million people. That was a lot for publication in the, in the mid nineties. Um, so I was like, you're going to reach a lot of people and they'll get to hear what music you like, you know, and that if they like that, they may buy your sneakers more. And he was like, okay. And so now I had eight minutes to do the interview because I just spent <laughs> two minutes on the intro. Um, yeah. And they, they rushed me out of it. I didn't get a, a photo shoot with him. Wow. Um, afterwards, uh, the photo, I always appeared in the column with whoever I was interviewing. Whether Sitting it was across Ro- from them, right? Oh, yeah, whether it was Rosie Perez or whether it was yeah. Crazy Legs or Stretch or mm-hmm. uh, Left Eye from TLC or Patti LaBelle. I mean, you name it. I, Billy Idol, Tony Bennett. I had huge people in my column. I always sat next to them in the column. I did some goofy face. Wasn't able to do that with Jordan. They rushed me out of there. So that was the only photo that um, was photoshopped in my vibe 10 year history. I had to go to uh, Nike town the next day and sit on a stage where he had just finished talking. And, um, and then the photographer took the photo and then they, the photoshopping was like, yeah, it was like new at the time. Kobe years later, how was that experience? He had no idea. I went to law Murray he was familiar with the column and I'm pretty sure he knew who I was. Cause me and stretches radio show in the nineties was like everything you know, to the culture. So he was recording his album with the track masters, I think. And I went down to the studio for Bob to interview him. He walks in with his boys. And so he like, Oh, look at this John B looking like whatever, um, like an R&B artist at the time. And I was like, Oh, you got jokes money. That's why you got them bell bottom sweatpants on. And then all his boys started laughing. So like we hit it off like, like immediately. And then, um, he was mad cool, mad cool. You know, he was like, yo, so what's this about? I was like, I'm going to play some music, whatever. I know you're trying to put out this rap album, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, yo, I went to Law Murrian. I was an ABC student. I lived on 121 Armour Avenue. So once I said that, he was like, his jaw dropped. Mm. Kobe was like, yo, my best friend in high school was an ABC student. So yeah, me and him just hit it off like immediately. I played him some dope joints. He loved them. We talked about music. It was probably around the same time I interviewed Jordan, quite honestly. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, um, maybe 97, 98. You know, very astute, very intelligent dude. And, uh, you know, although my paths crossed with him briefly, very impressionable. Yeah. So nothing but love for Kobe when uh, when he passed. But props to Michael, props to Kobe for all they've done for the sneaker world. Like, it's, it's ginormous. Were you surprised? Because I know people have passed around that quote a lot with the Michael Jordan interview where he kind of didn't really, I think he played him some rock him and he was like, is this hard rap? What is this? And he kind of had no idea the context of someone as important as that. Were you surprised? Were you let down? No, I directed a film titled Rock Rover 45s. It's an autobiographical documentary that was released in 2018. I had a scene in the film about my Vibe magazine years and the kicker and there is, I had to be uh, former editor in chief Mimi Valdez. Now she was tight that Jordan wasn't familiar with Rakim and quote said, I don't listen to rap at all. Mm-hmm. Now what happened, I mean, a lot of people are tight still to this day that like Jordan right. said, I don't listen to rap at all. Now let's, let's take into consideration a couple of things. One, 1963, right? So he's already like, and he doesn't grow up in New York. He grows up down south. So, right. you know, as was the case in the early 80s, I mean, you know, it took a little while for the culture that was vibrating in this city to resonate to the rest of the world. So it's quite possible that he didn't grow up listening to rap. Mm-hmm. Quite possible, you know. Um, and it's also, I think... Uh, short-sighted on people to think that all black people who are into basketball love rap and hip-hop i mean mm. you can look at jamel shabazz's book back in the days and he will tell you uh if you don't know who jamel shabazz the legendary photographer yeah you know he was taking photos of cats you know <laughs> like this he'll tell you like yo those dudes didn't listen to rap they liked r&b and they liked soul you know, mm. they had the do rags on and the BVDs and the and the and the laces out and 
not every black person loves rap music. It's just not the case, you know? And, and I think, um, uh, you know, judging from his age, from his lo locale, uh, it's not like he didn't say he didn't like black music. He was like, oh, I love Adriana Evans. It was like a neo soul mm -hmm. artist at the time. I was like, I was shocked that he knew who, who she was. You know, he was like, I like Erica Badu. I like John Coltrane. You know, I like my jazz. I like my soul. Like, I'm like, word. He's a chill out dude, you know? Mm. Now, what I found surprising, so it's not a big deal to me that he didn't like rap, that he didn't, he said, I didn't like, I don't listen to rap at all. Cause right. he didn't say, I've never listened to rap. And in fact, if you watch, I, I directed a series for ESPN Plus called Sneaker Center. And um, in my interview with Common, uh, on this is just, just this past, ran last summer, last fall, 2018. Right. And Common was like, yo, I was the ball boy for the for the Bulls Jordan's rookie season. I'm talking about Common, the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar winner, you know, dope MC from Chicago. And um and he said the first time he saw Jordan in the locker room, he distinctly remembers hearing uh was it Houdini? I can't remember the the name of the song he said, but he he heard Jordan and his teammates listening to rap in the locker room. Mm. So when I'm interviewing Jordan in 97, when he says, I don't listen to rap at all, that doesn't mean he didn't, he didn't say like, yo, I hate rap. Well, I've never listened to rap. He was just in 1997, in the moment, he says, I don't listen to rap at all. So that's cool. I'm not surprised right. by that. No, nah, I'm surprised right. that he says, when I'm like, oh, it's Rakim, he's basically who you are. You're the, for, the version of you. The version of you and, and, and for hip hop. And he's like, who? And I'm like, Rakim. Now that I find surprising. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, Rakim had a platinum album. He had commercial radio hits, you know, right. pay, paid in full. Uh, I mean, he had joints. I find it hard to believe that someone in the Bulls locker room wasn't bumping Rakim at some point, you know. Uh, but what I told the New York Times and what I'll share with you guys is that let's remember who Michael Jordan is. It's the most singularly focused athlete we have seen in our era on winning. Bar none. There's nobody at, on his level. And so just like I've never seen people make references, pop references about the Cosby show or whatever i don't i don't get them you know i don't mm. i don't know what lady gaga sounds like i don't know what drake sounds like i don't listen to that i don't i know who the artists people mention them i request them right. when i'm djing but to me it's totally the dude is so like yo i'm trying to win focus chips. yeah yeah it's com it's completely plausible to me that he was in locker room and people playing rock him and he was like yo i'm trying to win this game yo when y'all gonna shut up the music <laughs> you know, because it's a different era. They didn't have headphones on while they were doing warm ups, and different. Right. They didn't have rap music playing on on at halftime and layup line. Like it's a completely different era, you know. Yeah. So that's the full scope. It's fine that he didn't know who Rakim was, and it's fine that he said that he didn't listen to rap. I still love him as a ball player, and I still love him what he represents for sneaker culture. Had you come around on his sneakers by then? Because I know, like, you had Air Jordan 11s in '95 before they ever came out. You had a relationship with Nike going back to the mm -hmm. early '90s. How did you first get in touch with Nike? Was it through Wyden Kennedy? Yes, uh, and this is also detailed in my film Rock Rubber 45s R O C K R U B B E R four five S dot com. If you want to watch it. Um, but yeah, Nike hit me up in December of 1993. They were formulating their first ever, what was called city attack campaign, where they were going to focus, they were going to do, do hyper local marketing. It had never been done in any industry prior, um, mm -hmm. much less the sneaker world. And, um, they came to my crib, interviewed me. Did it feel like a big deal to you though, that Nike Come on, wanted to know? Come on, are you kidding me? Of course, man. Yeah. Think about yeah. that, Arabi. There's no, there's no consultants back then from the hood. Right. You know, totally. even athletes are barely like telling Nike what to do. It's right. not like now, y'all, y'all like, if you, you got to like take yourself out of the, the era and it's like, yeah, I was about flipping. Yo, are you kidding me? A dude that loves sneakers the way I did and love basketball the way I did. And now Nike mm -hmm. is like, 
calling me up like left and right like yo what is who should we have in a campaign who do you think we should cast where do you think we should put the campaign where do you think we should put the posters what courts should we feature like yo i'm i'm telling them everything yo how did the relationship evolve from there to where like you're getting like i said jordan 11s before they ever come out like did you end up going to nike headquarters like how much did they stay in touch with you yeah so in 93 they do the interview in new york 95 I'm being flown out to Beaverton. I mean, with Wild and Kenny, I'm meeting with Nike. They got me in a meeting with Tinka. Tinka sitting down with me, picking my brain, and having me sit down with Mark Smith, who, years, you know, six years later, winds up doing uh, the, the kitchen and 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 uh, and laser technology and sneakers. I mean, like, I'm meeting all these designers when they're young, you know, and I'm sitting with each of them for like an hour long. Like, they just picking my brain. Picking my brain, showing me sneakers. Hey, what do you think of these? Nah, but I mean, the, the one thing that really stuck was, uh, I mean, not so much with the with the sneaker consulting, uh, but um, in '99, Chris Amon, who was I forgot what his title was at Nike, he was like, "Yo." And Jerry aroused me to, like, I had done so much for Nike and Wyden and Kennedy. And, you know, my my name was ringing bells in New York because of me and Stretch's radio show. And I was playing ball and, you know, I was just doing, so, I had my store footwork. And I mean, I was just doing so much for the culture. Like, watch my film, Real Talk. Like, whoever's listening to this podcast, if you haven't watched my film, like, dead up, like, just watch my film. So Jerry Erasmi um, and and Chris Amon were both like, yo, we need to do a sneaker for you, like, and release it. Like, you're kind of like that dude. And, you know, in the 90s, it was unheard of for, like, a cat that wasn't an NBA player to get, like, a signature shoe, you know. So, of course, I was gassed, but I was also, like, not holding my breath because it was just... I were that's cool thanks a lot but chris was the one who was like yo if you could design your own shoe what would it be and um and i was like well low cut air force one white upper burgundy swoosh suede um with my name on the side gum bottom you knew right away Oh, I, I yeah. reeled that off without even thinking. I, I wasn't like, oh, let me get back to you. <laughs> yeah, let me get equation. back to you. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, gum bottom. And 99, you know, this is prior to like people saying gummies and gum, bottom, gum bottoms being a thing. And uh, 2002, I was hosting the uh, Nike Battlegrounds one-on-one tournament on the USS Intrepid off the pier in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had 32 of the best ball players in New York. And I was the announcer and they all warming up and Chris Amon comes around. And when I see him, his name is kind of like mud. Cause like, he kind of like gassed me up and like, you know, didn't come through, you know, like, uh, but you know, whatever, I'm a fair dude. I'm like, yo, what's up, Chris? How's everything? You know, so he walks up with a white box, yo, got nothing on it, on it, no swoosh on it. Just regular mm-hmm. white. I'd never seen a white box from Nike. Open that up in front of all 32 ball players. Like, yo, it's got my name on the side. It's uh, got the burgundy swoosh. You know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, you know, Nike ID, I think, had just, just started, or maybe it was just right. about to launch. I don't remember the time, the timeline of it. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. it was like, yeah, they wasn't really doing one on ones. And he handed me them shoes, and I was like, I could have cried now. Like, <laughs> yo. Amazing. So yeah, and everyone was like, "Yo, what's up?" Was that yo? Let me see those. And I, that's how I call my step offs. So everyone was like, "Yo, you what size of those?" Like, nah, be step off, yo. Step <laughs> off. These are not for you. See this? It's got my name on it. Not for you. Chill. Bob, as much as you love sneakers, I think you said once that they gave you 350 pairs of your own shoe just to have, and you gave away 349 pairs of the Air Force One. Is that true? That's truth. <laughs> I got one pair left that I wear and then I got the sample because the sample, we did a, a red high top tonal with a red swoosh that never came out. And um, I just got, it's just one side and I keep them just. Has those ever been seen? 
I did an exhibition at House of Hoops on 125th Street with Nike and Foot Locker, where I kind of like curated a wall that was partially like my own shoes and my selections of sneakers from their catalog that I thought had impacted Harlem in particular. Mm -hmm. Your resume is so crazy, but you had a sneaker store. Do you think that store is the first sneaker boutique ever? Bobito's Footwork, 1996 to 2000, New York, Philadelphia locations. Is that the first ever sneaker boutique? I don't think. It just was. Yeah. Prior, there were shops, right? Mm -hmm. That you walked in and the owners weren't really of the culture. Right. I mean, you got Packers. That's like a long family of shoe wearers. You know, the children were of the hip-hop generation, but they're, they're younger than me. And then there's Udi. Of course, we had training training camp. You know, he was of the culture, but he didn't have a boutique. I mean, Udi had like a proper store. He had square footage and Mm -hmm. he moved product, you know. Units, yeah. Yeah. But when we talk of what we now know as boutique, when you Mm -hmm. think of Bodega in Boston, where it's like, you think it's like a grocery store and it's like, oh, it's like sneaker shopping behind or you think of a life now i didn't have mm-hmm. the impact that any of those stores ever had i was a little bit ahead of my time you know the industry wasn't catering or the industry didn't lean or the industry didn't even, wasn't even like aware All of right. what it took me two years to get a nike account you understand mm-hmm. i had already done 40 commercials for the brand <laughs> wow that's wild so what was on the shelves then before you had the account well had a homegirl named Vanessa Setton, who was originally from Florida. And she would go down and she would come back with duffel bags. And I'd give her like $300. She would buy sneakers for me down there from this dude that had a shop in the 80s that I shut down. And he had he just had what y'all call dead stock. We didn't call it dead stock back in the 90s. And he had odd sizes and odd models and, you know, and off brands and fly stuff. And mm-hmm. she was buying it for like $10, $12 a pop. It's mm, crazy. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be fair to my customers. So I would mark them up $25, $30. It was basically just doubling the price, you know, prior to eBay, prior to StockX. Yo, the Japanese were way ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. And they would come into my store and my eyes would light up. Like I'm dead up. I'd be like, yo. You're going to pay rent today. I'm paying yeah. my rent yeah. today. Yeah. yeah. They <laughs> drop like 300 to $400, sometimes $700 with a duffel bag. Same thing like I was doing. Only difference was that they were taking sneakers that I was selling and marking them up to $300. And then there was the black market. And a lot of people don't know about this. But in the 90s, there were like warehouses in Long Island. And my boy, Ahmad Hooper, who worked for Ike's Athlete's Foot, Ahmad was the one who was like, yo, Bob, I know you're struggling getting accounts. Take this phone number, call up this dude. You got to take a full-size run. Can't cherry pick, you know? So I was going out to Long Island and getting Tim's and getting Nikes and getting Adidas Top 10, Red, White, and Blues, which were like super rare at the time and bringing them into my shop. And so now now I got my, my Miami Connect and I got my Long Island Connect. And then finally the Nike account comes in how is it the black market? Yeah, where are they coming from? You didn't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> but there were warehouses listen. full of shoes that you could go and get you, stock from. You go in to the warehouse. You had to pay everything in cash. Mm-hmm. You had to do full size runs, you know, mm-hmm. size six to size 14. And, and it was uh, good stuff. Not all the time. Sometimes you go out there and it wasn't, you'd be like, ah, you know. And again, like you got to remember, like I'm highly curating my store. Mm-hmm. Because I don't have any accounts, I don't have to like, you know, brands would be like, well, if you don't take this, you can't get, you can't, get can't get the Air Force One, you know. Anyway, so 98 comes along and I finally get my account thanks to Betsy Parker. Now, Betsy Parker is the sister of Mark Parker. You might know his name, mm-hmm. right? And <laughs> she was good friends with Jerry Rasmi when the Nike office in New York was on 22nd Street. It was only like 10... 15 people in the entire mm-hmm. office and Betsy Parker. So me and her became that cool. She was my liaison to Tinker and to Mark Smith and to Aaron Cooper. Betsy was like, yo, how's, how's everything going with the shop? And I was like, yo, I'm struggling trying to get an account. She was the one that was like, put the, the, the hard hammer down. I was like, yo, you giving this dude an account. Do you know what he means to the <laughs> brand? 
Yeah. Mm. You know how hard this dude is going for it for everybody? Yeah. And it, you know how underpaid he's been? The sister of the eventual Nike CEO is the one who had to call up and say, give this man yeah, a but, fucking account. But Mark Parker wasn't he right. wasn't who he Not was. Not until I'm, 2006 or we're so. We're talking about 90, 1997. It was in yeah. the, the account finally comes in. I'm getting flashed up. My sales rep, Gene Smith, would come into my shop and be like, yo, Bob, here's the new catalog. Hey, yo, <laughs> you imagine? Can you guys, you can't imagine. Mm-hmm. You just can't imagine what it was like to see sneakers six months before they were coming out. In the nineties, that was yeah, come crazy. on, guys, yeah. come yeah. on! You talk about embargoes. You guys in the industry, yeah. like you, know, you, you get to see the sneakers. But if you're not in in sneaker journalism, you know, you just like oh, you just got to wait until the embargo is over. And was it was it hard holding that secret knowledge in your head? You know, <laughs> you knew about all these shoes that were going to come out before. Come on, you get on the internet. Boz, nice and nasty. Boz, who was my store manager, uh, mm-hmm. DJ Ellie, who you know big time international DJ. Now he was in my, you know, we used to, we used to go to the back of the store and just stare at the catalog straight up. We just like, just stare at it for hours. Like, yo, look at this anyway. So in, uh, 99, that's when the dunks were coming back out. Mm-hmm. And I told Gene, I said, yo, I'll take a full size run of every color. <laughs> Kentucky, Syracuse, UNLV, Michigan, yep. Syracuse. Good, good. And Gene was like, yo, chill, Bob. You acting emotional. And I'm like, yo, B, I'm a sneakerhead. Mm. Like, this is my life. This is why I opened up this store. Cats are going to bong off of the dunks. You kidding me? They haven't been out in, what, like 14 years? Right. You know, and they were hot when they came out, like hot. You know, the Jordan ones in New York, not so hot. Dunks, whoa, hot, <laughs> hot, mm. low cut dunks hot top dunks ball players what about now dunks in the past what guys a year are scorching again and off-white just did yeah. the collab and you know you just said in 99 not that you took a bet on it but you were like these are going to be hot or these are hot and now decades later it's kind of like again the shoe of the moment i would say mm-hmm. well that's great to know um they they kind of sat on <laughs> like the heads knew Mm-hmm. and ate them up but they sat on my shelf for a while but also i mean my store wasn't selling volume like that so gene mm-hmm. was right i probably shouldn't have taken a full-size run of every color um <laughs> but i did it and uh you know my store wanted to close in the 2000 the lower east side was getting gentrified and then my lease with no explanation and that's history and then a life opened up a year later months later i don't know yeah. that was a i cried that day when i closed the shop it was such a hard day in my life but whatever had it stayed open and you know might have like yeah. 15 footworks around the world like i see sneakers and stuff you know mm-hmm. doing what they're doing and that could have very well been me if i had the industry support and because i was in the basement you yeah. know you could walk by my store 10 times and i knew it was there so it was bodega before it was bodega you know mm. anything in sneakers currently excite you yeah, 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 there's there's some a lot of fly stuff, but you don't need to ask me about that. Like you guys cover that very well. <laughs> yeah, but it's always good to to get like someone who was there and yeah. like who who really has the appreciation of like yesteryear and then seeing from start to like where we are now. And it's always interesting for me to ask because sometimes even us, we're so close to it. I like to see like the perspective of someone who like what we're missing out yeah, on who's yeah. really hands-on on like hey this is this is cool in real life and this is kind of could be internet cool listen uh, you know i'm lucky in that i've been sort of like on the forefront of so much in this culture that it affords me the respect from a lot of event producers to be like yo we're doing the first event in Africa's history. We want you to be the guest of honor. So I went to Street Cred back in 2010. You know, Sneaking S, 2007, they f- first started. They did, you know, they wound up growing, you know, and uh, Sergio Musto was like, yo, we just want you to be here. Like, just talk, shake hands, take photos. So I've done that, you know, every sneaker event you can think of. Um, and I love going to these events because, like, 
you know, you get to see the the pulse, you know, what kids are, are really excited about, you know, what they're, what they're, what's emerging. Um, and a lot of these events are cool because the brands aren't involved. So it's like, it's really like just what it is. Um, and uh, when I went to SneakerCon in San Jose um, to cover it for my series Sneaker Center, which I directed for uh, ESPN Plus um, last uh, in 2019, you know, and just seeing the lines of, of kids trying to get in and, you know, and kids selling sneakers online and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's fantastic to see, you know, it's fantastic to see. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of fly fly sneakers out there. They're being made very well. I'm excited that that Converse is making performance shoes again. I'm excited that New Balance is making performance shoes again. Um, I'm excited that Puma is making performance shoes again. Like I was tight when each of them were like, "Oh, we're dropping." Like, come on, man. Like Converse especially. Like me and Clark went and went up to uh, Boston and spoke with them. It was like two or three years ago and i was just like i was like yo what were y'all thinking when you stopped doing performance you're talking about you you were the preeminent brand you know for like 50 years and and i mean you guys phil knight phil knight would say like yeah like you know we started out as a running brand but our soul is basketball performance you know and it's like like i just looked at converse differently when they stopped making performance shoes it's like just it's like empty container you know so now that they're making con uh sneakers again to play ball and i'm amped and and yo they're dope the pro bbs are fly the g4s are fly i got a pair got two pairs of pro bbs i got it just hooked me with the g4s and like i'm not i'm not saying like they're like i play ball in them i go out dj in them <laughs> you know like yeah like i'm amped about that um i think uh Puma has some great ideas. The idea of naming the shoe Clyde to keep the legacy alive of what he did for the brand, I think is very respectful and brilliant. You know, because for me, it's like, look, I grew up in an era where there was no brand loyalty. Yeah. Brand loyal was the whack. Like, mm. it was all about being, oh, there's a new, oh, yo, what are these Sakani? How do you pronounce this word? Sakani, Sakani, <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. Like my brother Ray, like he was wearing, we called him Nike back in the seventies. We didn't know there was no, there's no commercials that we, we could learn how to say Nike, you know, and my brother in 77 was wearing Nike blazers in the park at the goat when no one was even knew what the brand was. That was cool for us. You know, always like if it wasn't a new brand, then it was a new model or, you know, whatever, just being different. And I like, I like choice. And I think there's a lot of choice right now. You know, I think we could talk forever. You have so much history yep. and we appreciate you taking the time and chopping it up with us. It's such a great history lesson for our audience. Every time I see Bob, like I mentioned, we spoke in Dubai briefly. I think we've talked at Extra Butter a few times. Every time I see Bob, I always have to give him thanks because we couldn't do the things that we do without the groundwork that he laid. And that's so, so important yeah. to always be appreciative of that. And thank you. If you don't know everything Bob's done, watch rock rubber 45, yes. watch stretch and Bobito radio that changed lives. Watch all that because this guy really has done it all from writing about the stuff before it was even an idea to owning a store, to doing sneaker media on TV before anybody else thought that that was viable. So all I can do is give thanks. We well, yeah. appreciate that. I want to acknowledge Russ Bankston. Yes, of course. Because yeah. Russ, Shout Uncle Russ. Russ, but Russ was the first person in media that really pinpointed, and I don't even think I realized it. You know, mm -hmm. I always knew that I wrote the first article in media history about sneaker culture, but Russell, I mean, Russ kind of put it in perspective. He was like, Bob is the progenitor of sneaker journalism. Like, mm -hmm all this that we have is like it starts with him yeah wow that's deep i hadn't really thought about that so um you know soul collector sneaker freaker you know it's like everything trickles back to confessions of a sneaker addict <laughs> at the source yes. and it's crazy to think about you know it's yeah. crazy to think about i just remember like that whole era of just being kind of like obsessed with shoes and then 
watching and thinking it was weird that I was obsessed with sneakers mm-hmm. and then seeing things like it's the shoes yeah. or, you know, where'd you get those? And I'm like, wow, there's actually other people or, out there that yeah. are crazy about yeah. it. Like, yeah. like I am. And I never thought that mm-hmm. reading that stuff back then that I would be doing this now. So yeah. I just mm-hmm. want to thank or, you for that. No doubt, man. Yo, thanks. Thank you fellas. Thanks to David Matthews, even though you guys make fun of him. No, and, we uh, love him. We love uh, him. Thank you, Bob. We appreciate it so much and stay safe. And hopefully we can chop it up in person next time when we're out of this just be on lookout for what i got going on i'm cool bob love k-o-o-l-b-o-b-l-o-v-e on all social platforms and uh that's it fellas peace man Word up. thank you so much bob, Thanks, bro. Appreciate thank you, bob. It. our producer is shiva bayette sound engineering done by kyle garvey special thanks to dave matthews and jennifer stewart the complex sneakers podcast is part of the complex podcast network